0: Fyodor Dostoevsky said, um, men have succeeding in accumulating a great mass of objects, but the joy in the world has grown less. I'm assuming that most of you all know what chiggers are. Uh, they're like mosquitoes on steroids. And as a kid, hanging out by the creek and in the woods and going to the lake and camping, uh, I became fairly, fairly familiar with these little nasties. Um, Very rarely do I wonder what God was thinking, but chiggers are one part of his creation that does make me wonder every now and then. Uh, Maybe they were a result of the fall. I can't imagine (laughs) chiggers being in the Garden of Eden, and they won't be on the new redeemed earth uh, in the form that they're in. chiggers attack in squadrons. They hang out on what I was called chigger bushes, and when you get near them, they're like kamikaze pilots, and they leap out for your skin, and then they get into some of the worst little crevices on your body and set up shop. And the itch is irresistible. You can you can try to manage the itch by scratching, but the relief doesn't last long. So as a kid, I spent a good part of my summers with pink splotches all over my body. And you guys have been there maybe. I don't even know if calamine lotion is a thing anymore, but is it still? Okay. Uh, so it look, I hated that stuff. It looked like I had makeup on, you know, and mom would dab that stuff all over me with a cotton ball and... So when I saw something about the law of the itch, it took me back to my days of chiggers and that nasty pink lotion. And here is the law of the itch. No one ever made an itch go away by getting really good at scratching. I'd say many of us have an itch that we just keep scratching, but it's not stopping the itch. Like Dostoevsky said, we have an itch for more, and all the scratching doesn't bring relief, more money, more house. Uh, More clothes, more status, more attention, more fame. We want more to satisfy the itch, but no matter how good of a scratcher we become, the itch is always there. So today, I want to talk about contentment. And I suspect uh, this is a topic that is always going to be relevant. We could spend a lot of weeks talking about contentment because we have few two models, a few... uh, Two models of contentment around us. Uh, Paul takes a look at this particular itch in First Timothy 6. I want to read a few verses starting at verse 3. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a mean to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So here's a here's a bit of what's going on in Ephesus where Timothy is working when Paul writes this letter. There are some folks in the church community who are causing Timothy some grief. And these guys are teaching a false or incorrect doctrine, and Paul is determined to expose these people for who they are, and they have two sinful goals in mind in their hidden agenda. The first one is they're using religion for financial gain, which we just read in verse 5. They think godliness is a means to financial gain. Number two, they are looking to use religion to take advantage of women. Uh, Here's some insight from 2 Timothy 3 verse 6. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed with all kinds of evil desires. Religion provides nearly the perfect cover for evil. In the Roman Empire, religious and philosophical preachers used their profession to gain money and sex. Religion, for the sake of personal gain, was already well known in Paul's day. That's why Paul makes a point to take to not take money uh, from the people for his work. So Paul, for godliness, uh, so for Paul, godliness with contentment is great gain. But for these religious pretenders. Godliness is a means to financial gain. And it's funny how some things haven't changed. You know, how long is the list of people we've heard about who've used religion as a power, as a cover uh, to cover up greed or to cover up sexual addiction? We hear about the lavish extravagance of some high profile minister with multimillion dollar homes and private jets and gold toilets and five or six European cars in the garage So for the sake of full disclosure, I want to let you know that we did buy a new riding lawnmower last month, (laughs) and it was crazy how much it cost. My dad brought home a brand new Vega in 1976 when I was 15 years old, and that's the car I got to drive sometimes when I got my license. I believe he paid $2,700, brand new, for that Vega, and our mower purchase was just a bit shy of the same amount. So I felt like I should confess that um, this morning. I was not content with the old mower, but the new one is is pretty sharp. So that's the context for Paul's message. A context where religion is being used for personal gain. A context where contentment is a lost art. I want to go back to verse 6 in Timothy. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. And then this line... But if we have clothing, we will be content with that. That last sentence is a shocking statement. Let that sink in. In fact, let's say the last line together just to help it sink in. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now, let's take it a step further. Will you say that last line with me only if you seriously mean it? And let's change the we to I. Um, I'll get you started because I can't really say it. (laughs) So I'll get you started. I will be content. Anybody who can say this now? Finish it off. With food and clothing. (laughs) Anybody going to finish this? (laughs) I mean, who in here is content with food enough to survive and clothing enough to protect and cover? Verse 9, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into any many mullet foolish and uh, harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I suggest you circle four words in these verses. Uh, the word want, the word desires, the word uh, love, and the word eager. Notice Paul doesn't say wealth is wrong. He doesn't even say wealth is a bad thing. That's not what he thinks. What he does say is this. The desire to be rich is wrong. People who want to get rich is a problem. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the truth. Want, desire, love, and eager. That's the problem, not the money. But the longing to be rich. Verse 11. But you, man of God, you, woman of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He's telling us real clearly flee from this greed, uh, don't pursue wealth. Pursue righteousness, you guys can pull this off the page as easy as as I can. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. So Paul lays out some fundamental principles to attack this temptation of greed. He says, if you have money, don't be arrogant. It's not like it's yours anyway. Don't put your hope in wealth. Why? Because it's temporary. With a market drop of around 20% this year, we surely learned that lesson again. Do good. Be generous. Share the wealth. Store up treasures for the long term, treasures that will last. And don't you love this line? God richly provides everything. For our enjoyment. That's a great truth to keep nearby. But I need you to go back to First Timothy 6 8 for a moment. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. I I can't seem to just walk away from that line. Because first of all, I don't even know that I understand it. Or if I ever will in my lifetime. Maybe this is one of those lines we choose to conveniently dismiss as cultural. It's good for them. Times are different now. It's okay for us to need more to be content. My guess is that we can better understand conditional contentment. I'll be content when this happens. Or I'll be content when that happens. We're, we're more like the monk who entered the monastery to seek a more spiritual lifestyle. Uh, this monaster was, monastery was very strict. Very strict. All you were given to eat every day was soup and bread. And every 10 years, you were allowed to speak two words. So after 10 years, this new guy finally gets to speak, and he says, soup, cold. He waits 10 more years. He says, bread, stale. (laughs) And after 10 more years, he finally gets to speak again. He says, I quit. (laughs) And the director of the monastery says, I'm not surprised. It's been nothing but complain, complain, complain ever (laughs) since you got here. See, if happiness depends on happenings, rejoicing always is going to be elusive. We chase after the world to find what the world doesn't even have. The world doesn't have contentment. And that's extremely obvious to us if we just open our eyes. Materialism is for many people, maybe even most of us, God's main rival. 80% of Americans say the U.S. is too materialistic. Ironically, most of us would say we would like more for ourselves. We don't want to be materialistic, and we may not even label ourselves as materialistic. We just want a little more. Paul writes this cryptic line in Philippians. He says, I have learned the secret of being content in every situation. He he writes that line, but then he doesn't spell out the ingredients uh, to the secret. You know, how, how cruel is that? Uh, we, we want to know the secret. We need to know the secret. Paul, tell us, tell us the secret. I want to know how food and clothing are enough. How do we get to this level of maturity in Christlikeness? I, I really don't know. I really don't know. Sometimes it helps to think about what something isn't when you can't really understand what it is. So let's do that for a moment. Let's start with what we know isn't the secret. We know that more stuff doesn't equal more happiness. Too many people live by this motto. People who say money doesn't buy happiness don't know where to shop. We look around and we see all this stuff and all this stuff that claims to satisfy us. And we start to believe the advertisements. So we go out and we buy a bunch of stuff. And now when we move, it takes a huge moving van to carry all our stuff. We have to buy a house with a basement and build an extra garage to store all this vitally important stuff, stuff we haven't used for years. What's funny is we'll move boxes to the new place that were never unpacked from the last place. I mean, how, how crazy is that? A few weeks ago was the time in our, this is known as the Seven Parks neighborhood here around Elizabeth Street and Dantzler. Uh It's time for leases to be up on all the college rental property around here. And most everyone that was in a house moves out and they drag all their junk to the curb. It's a disaster. It, it, it drives me crazy. Driving down Elizabeth Street, dodging a dozen mattresses and couches, you know, just to get to work. This year, the city came with something I hadn't seen before. They were driving down Elizabeth Street with a dump truck, and it just had a big claw on it. And they were reaching out over the truck and onto the curb, and just picking stuff up and dumping it in this dump truck. I, that stuff didn't bring happiness And it brings me a lot of anxiety. So I just don't like it. (laughs) Solomon. Solomon, the guy with more wealth available to him than any of us will ever see, has something to say about our stuff. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. Those who love money will never have enough. How absurd to think that wealth brings true happiness. Another translation words it this way. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. There is no direct correlation between well-being and being well-off. Over the past 50 years, our material standard of living has skyrocketed with no substantial increase in any level of happiness. In fact, the opposite is true. The more you strive for power and wealth and fame, the more unlikely you are to be happy. Living well isn't the same as being well-off, and having more doesn't mean happiness. Another thing we know isn't the secret is this. You have a lot, you are a lot. You have little, you are little. We, buy, we, we sometimes buy into the lie that says the more stuff you have, the more important you are. Here's what Solomon has to say about that in verse 11. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what's the advantage of wealth except perhaps to watch it run through your fingers? We have a broken system that places a higher value on people who possess more valuables. That's why a Hollywood celebrity who makes a lot of money gets airtime to express their political views, and you don't. I drive a 2004 Yukon with a quarter million miles on it. No one wants to hear from me. God never gives us the idea that those with money are more important than those with less. Nor does he say the opposite. Everyone is equally valued in God's economy. Here's one more thing we know isn't the secret. The more stuff I have, the more secure I'll be. Leaning on Solomon again in verse 12, people who work hard sleep well whether they eat much or little, but the rich are always worrying and they seldom get a good night's sleep. I mean, how many of us feel more secure when there's more money in the bank? We feel a little better, more secure with a financial cushion or a a safety net to fall into. Dave Ramsey advises people to have an emergency fund of $1,000 dollars. That's baby step one. And then I think baby step three is to save three to six months of your annual salary because, because life happens. That, that makes a lot of sense. Having money and savings is wise. God encourages that. But not so that we'll feel more secure. It's for the sake of self-discipline and self-restraint. So we start to believe the lie. We start to believe if I just had more stuff, and that's when our eyes really go bad. We, we start to turn a shade of green called envy. We're always focused on stuff in the world. When we do that, we get very disconnected. We focus on what other people have and what we don't have. And our soul uh, inside just starts to get dark. We become stingy and mean and self-centered. And it all starts with our eyes. A coworker closes a multi-million dollar deal and gets a huge bonus. And all of a sudden, your eyes turn toward envy. A gorgeous woman walks into the sorority house. And all the other women give her an evil eye. Your best friend is invited on a date by the guy you told her you liked. She accepted, and now you're eating up with envy. And even though you're a better player, this other guy's the starting shortstop, and you sit in the dugout glaring out onto the infield. <clears throat> There's a great definition of envy I ran across. Envy is resenting God's goodness in other people's lives while ignoring his goodness in mine. Buried in that definition of envy is part of the secret Paul may have learned. Let's go back to Philippians ten again, Philippians four again, verse ten. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed you've been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, and I can do everything in Him who gives me strength. Don't miss the beginning of verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. And if you look up to verse 4 in the same chapter, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. So I don't know... All of the secret ingredients to contentment. But I have come to realize that somewhere in the recipe of being content is this one common ingredient. We must learn to be satisfied with the blessings that God gives us. And enjoy those things. Because they were intended, as Paul said, for our enjoyment. One of the more disgraceful realities of the American church is the huge number of ungrateful Christians. Our daughter's kindergarten teacher taught it this way to her students. You get what you get. And what? Yeah. You don't throw a fit. I heard a story about an older fellow who was on his deathbed, and his wife, Sarah, was by his side. And with the little strength he had left, he said to her, Sarah, I've been thinking. When I asked you to marry me, I had so little, but you said yes, and you've been faithful to me for so many years. And then what I had, I lost in the depression, but you stayed with me. Then the war broke out, and I had to enlist, and you enlisted as a nurse to be next to me. When I was wounded at battle, you were right there beside me, helping me get better. Since then, we've had nothing but one struggle after another, but you've stayed with me. And now I'm about to die, and the first face I see every morning, Sarah, is your face. You know what? Your bad luck. We're in a culture surrounded every day with blessings, and we have a hard time learning to be grateful. Paul says he knows what it is to be in need, and he knows what it is to have plenty. It seems to me Paul knows what it is to have plenty of need. His definition of plenty is probably different than ours. Uh, One decent meal and, and, and not getting beaten with rods. When we travel, we check out the hotels. When Paul traveled, he'd he'd check out the jail on the way into town because he knew he was going to be there sooner or later. And Paul wrote these words from jail. I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. He learned contentment can't be lived in, driven, worn, or deposited. And again from 1 Timothy 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out. If many of you have been in a delivery room, and guess what? Paul, Paul's right, isn't he? You don't bring anything into this world with you. And I have yet to see anyone take anything with them when they go either. A couple of weeks ago, I stood in the Lexington Cemetery surrounded by headstones. And you know that property is one of the most beautiful spots in Lexington. And at the same time, it's also a stark reminder that you just can't take it with you. And though there were green awnings scattered through the cemetery that day waiting to shade those saying goodbye, I didn't see a single trailer. No one was unloading any belongings into the graves. When John Rockefeller died, his accountant was asked, how much did John D. leave? And his accountant replied, all of it. He left all of it. Later in Philippians 4, Paul writes this line, and it may have something to do with the secret. My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Jesus Christ. My discontentment and your discontentment has really never been about a lack of food and clothing. It's been rooted in a lack of a thankful spirit and a trusting heart. In the book of Philippians, there are 104 verses. Jesus' name or pronoun referring to him is written about 50 times. Do you think being connected to Jesus may be another ingredient of the secret? I mean, that's, that's all Paul talks about. He loves to talk about Jesus. Then we come to this kind of iconic line in Philippians 4.13 that everybody knows. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, if you want to use that verse as a chant of encouragement to reach the finish line of a marathon or to push you through another bitter cold Kentucky winter or sweltering humidity of a Kentucky summer Or to help you say no to overeating or overbuying or overindulging, you can go ahead. But Paul probably didn't intend for us to use his powerful statement for any of those things. That line and verse 19 are pointing us toward the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And as we learn that all we are and all we have and all we do and all we hope for, it's all a gift from God. And that our relationship with God is made possible only through Jesus Anything we become that honors God is only because Jesus gives us the strength to become that. He will meet all our needs because of his deep pockets. We go to so many flawed and anemic, shallow and impotent sources to, be, to find contentment when the whole time we're out looking around, the one who holds the keys to the kingdom is offering to give us a set of our own. Remember what it was like to get those keys in your hands the first time. At 16, maybe your dad, your mom hands you the keys to the car. Or maybe it's your first car that you buy, or your first home, or your own business. You know, did any of those sustain contentment? Your first home, you know, soon became crowded, or outdated, or just not portraying the image that you wanted to portray. We become discontented so easily, and yet Jesus dangles the keys to the kingdom right in front of us. He will hand us the keys to the kingdom of God. I can do all things through him who gives me strength because the one who gives me strength has unlimited resources, and he's given me access to those unlimited resources. And it's no wonder I'm so discontented with all this stuff, with all this junk. I've been, diagnosed, I've been designed, and you've been designed by God to receive something so much more extravagant and filling and meaningful. So, I have a couple of questions for all of us to think about this morning. In fact, you may benefit by thinking about it more than just this morning. And here it is What is the one thing separating you from contentment? And maybe this this will help you find an answer. How do you fill in this blank? I will be content when? When I'm healed? When I'm promoted? When I'm married, when I'm single, when I'm rich, when I'm retired, when I'm a parent. And with your answer in mind, try on this question. If your ship never comes in, if your dreams never come true, if your situation never changes, could you still be content? I, I get it. I understand. We we may not be able to say like Paul does, if I have food and clothing Uh, I'm content with that. But are you moving in that direction? Are you moving in the direction of contentment? Contentment, that's not about having a bunch of stuff or seeing things go your way. True contentment is based on the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Contentment that's based on knowing who is truly in charge of things around here and trusting him. Contentment that's based on genuine gratitude for the gifts, the good things in your life which God has given you and thanking him. If you've never placed your life and your failures, your future in Jesus' hands and exchanged it all in for for the keys to the kingdom, contentment will continue to be short-term and elusive for you. Jesus offers you contentment, which will continue to grow in your life and change the way you think. And who knows, maybe someday you and I will also be able to say, if I have food and clothing, I will be content with that. If all the scratching you've been doing isn't relieving the itch, maybe it's time to try to do something different. Maybe it's time to stop scratching and start trusting and start being more vocally grateful. I have no doubt that God has given every one of us in here so many good gifts, beginning with salvation through Jesus. The one who can give us abundantly more than all we ask or imagine is ready to do just that. So this morning, look his way. Trust his plan. Accept the keys to his kingdom and live as a grateful daughter and son of the King. Let's stand together and sing.